Welcome to With All Due Respect by Eternity News, where we discuss the big topics with grace. I'm Megan Powell Dutois. I'm Michael Jensen. Yes, you are. I'm glad you remember. I've been for ages. Yeah, yeah, for quite a while. Well, today we're looking at evangelicals post Trump. Uh, in a country with a worsening COVID situation, a very polarizing president or outgoing president, a deep division evidenced by protests during this year. The 2020 US election has received a lot of global attention, including here in Australia. I don't think I've ever seen it um, be so uh, invested in Australia. We're going to talk to Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior, evangelical professor and prominent never-Trumper, about where to next for US evangelicals. And Michael and I then are going to discuss how this is playing out amongst Aussie evangelicals and how much should we be speaking out about it as Christian leaders. And then we finished with one of the very first political films that was always made for a time such as this. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Be our guest, opening up the conversation to others. So Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior is Research Professor of English and Christianity and Culture. It's a job I'd love to have at Southern Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, She's an author of numerous books, and we actually reviewed her book on reading well in a previous episode. I really enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's a public commentator, particularly in recent times, on evangelicalism and politics and Christianity Today and on the Gospel Coalition. She's a co-founder of the Pelican Project, a guild of women fostering commitment to Christian faith and practice across cultural, denominational and racial lines, which does sound a little bit like our project here at With All Due Respect, except... I'm a man. Um, <laughs> nice that you've noticed. That's yeah, right. Michael. Well, welcome to, with all due respect, Karen. It's great to have you. It's great to be with you across the miles <laughs> through technology. Yeah. Yeah. So we wanted to start by asking, look, we, we've noticed uh, that evangel- evangelicalism has been a large support base for Trump. At least that's been reported. Why Why do you think that's been the case? Why are evangelicals so attracted to to the, the Trump vision? Well, it's it's really complicated, and I'll try to give give sort of a simple answer. I mean, it does. Go, I mean, there are a couple of things at play. It, of course, it goes back to uh, the 2016 election when, running up to the to the primaries for the Republican Party, we had over a dozen candidates. So that, of course, meant that any one candidate was not going to get a majority of the votes. It was. Mm. You know, to say it was split, you know, more than a dozen ways is kind uh, of kind of gives you a picture of, of of a candidate who would emerge with, you know, just really could, uh, in the teens in terms of uh, of the vote. And so, um, so that was really the the first I think fatal error is just simply that a lot of Americans are not in the habit of um, voting in primaries, right. so a small number gets to, to pick one. And that, But then, of course, what happened after that, um, because we are largely a two-party system, is that, you know, people had to decide between Trump uh, and the Democratic candidate, Hillary Clinton, and uh, most evangelicals uh, for, you know, a few generations have uh, identified evangelicalism with conservatism, mm. with re- the Republican Party, and of course the social issues that have been important to evangelicals like abortion um, and traditional marriage have been ones that the Republican Party aligns much more closely with. And so in one sense, it I can understand, it actually makes sense that if you're evangelical and these are the most important issues and you feel like you have only two choices, um, Trump 
was, uh, you know, a, a choice. Um, but I think the other thing that made him attractive is that evangelicals consider themselves kind of to be outsiders and they consider themselves to be entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial, They actually are innovative, always sort of on the cutting edge of, of change. And so the other piece that I think Trump really did offer is the perception that he was an outsider. He was a businessman. Mm. He wasn't politics as usual. And that's attractive to a lot of people. And then the third thing, and I will say, even though there are many more, but I, I think mm. a major factor is that a lot of the things that were worst about Trump, um, the accusations of sexual assault, there were many of them, mm. his own um, crude statements about about how he physically um, assaulted women, a lot of those things either could be rationalized as media exaggerations or they were circulating on on Twitter. A lot of things that happen on Twitter and most people in real life that I know, for example, are really not on Twitter. So there was some ignorance about mm. I, what I think are the most egregious failures on his part. And then perhaps, you know, a romantic idealism about about his persona as an outsider and a successful businessman. Now, you weren't sort of really part of that base, though, because, I mean, as you said to Christianity Today, you said, I cannot vote for either Biden or Trump, um, that you're, you're not a single-issue voter, but protection of human life and dignity topped your hierarchy of political concerns, and, and neither of them were able to address those in a way that satisfied you. So... You ended up being somebody who spoke out against Trump, and so why did you and some other evangelicals sort of break from that base? Yeah, no, that, that's right. I did, and actually, I spoke out about him as early as as twenty sixteen, mm. uh, when when the infamous you know video ta- or audio tapes were released with him saying you know how he would grab women against their will and um, that women like that. Mm. Um, so I wrote an article then. Um, saying how inappropriate that was because there were people, including evangelicals, who were just kind of dismissing it as, oh, it's just locker talk. You didn't really mean it. Um, so from that point on, uh, you know, from 2016 on, I was um, basically, uh, you know, what they call a, a never Trumper. Yeah. And so when it came down to this election, um, you know, I am not someone who supports very much at all with the Democratic Party either. So um, I just believe that for those of us who feel politically homeless, as, as we often describe it, mm. um, we aren't going to see change until we refuse to vote for for the unacceptable candidates. And mm. so I voted for a third party candidate because I know that a lot of people say that's throwing your vote away. But as long as we just keep going along, we aren't going to get the kind of change that some of us say we want. So uh, that that must have, uh, in the evangelical community, um, I guess that's cost you some friends maybe? Has that um, brought you some heavy criticism and uh, cost you some friends? You know, it's, it, it's interesting because I have received criticism, you know, some pretty severe criticism from on both sides. There mm. are those in my more conservative evangelical community who say that I'm liberal, who say that I'm, you know, enabling liberalism, advancing liberalism. And then there are those um, who, who were, you know, so um, felt so vulnerable by the Trump administration who saw it as a great, as a betrayal of their lives and dignity to not do the, you know, to, to ensure that he 
do my part to ensure that he wasn't in office. So um, I wouldn't say that I I have lost friends, but I would say that this is the most polarizing and difficult and distrustful time that I've ever lived in. And I feel like mm. I've lived through, you know, a few decades of controversy within the evangelical world and the political world. Um, this is a very, very different time than I've ever seen. Yeah, you've, um, you said, I think, to the New Yorker back in 2019, that the real problem wasn't Trump. And I can kind of hear that with what you're saying now. You said we have a need as evangelicals to clean our own house. I mean, what kind of cleaning up do you think evangelicalism needs to do now that Trump has lost? Mm. Well, you know, yes, I, I said that and believed it in 2019 in that article. And yet now after the 2020 election, I see, I think, even even more, more deeply. Mm. Um, I think what has happened, and I'm still thinking it through, so thanks mm. for helping me to do that here. But um, of course, some of the things that Trump has accomplished in terms of foreign policy and Supreme Court appointments are the kinds of things that I've wanted all of my adult life. And so I ask myself, why why was I not able to vote for him even you know, because he was doing these things that I've I've worked for all my life. And I realized it's because the end doesn't justify the means. Mm. And these things that I want, um, you know, protection for human life and um and you know and 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 some of the foreign policies that I uh that I've heard from from those who are actually affected by them overseas. Mm. Um it if we if if we as a church say that we want those things, then it is we are the ones who have to make sure that they get done and they have to be done in the right way. And we can't just simply say we're going to vote for the right right guy and he's going to do it for us. I think that is what's happening: is that we justify our votes because we want someone else to do the work that really belongs to us. We need to change the hearts oh. and minds of people. It's sort of an outsourcing that we shouldn't be doing. <laughs> you put it so well. Yes. <laughs> that yes, that 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 is what it has come down to. Mm. When we compromise that much, then it's simply outsourcing. So would you say um that uh, evangelicals in the United States are too are too distracted or too focused on the political and political ends to a particular agenda? Is that is that a fair charge? I, I think it's fair, and I want to include myself in that because I also, you know, I spent a couple of decades kind of with my eye on that Supreme Court and working in, in different political organizations, even ran for office once myself a long time ago. Um, and so I do think it's part of the way that we, um, in, you know, we've been formed in the, for the past, you know, 50 years or so in American evangelical life. Um, we have put too much faith in politics. Mm. And so I wanted want to, to kind of point to the future and maybe say, what kind of leadership should uh, we be looking for in the evangelical movement uh, going forward? What kind of movement could we be? Well, that's a really good question. I, I, I think that the leadership that we are um, seeing now is an outgrowth of, of, as I said, too much faith in politics, but also too much faith in in a, a certain form of power. Mm. Um, and I want to say that, you know, I, I want to give the best read of that. I do think that 
you know, we, we live in this sort of celebrity culture and everyone wants to be an influencer. And as mm-hmm. Christians, it's easy to say, well, I want this platform or I want this power. I want this seat at the head table so mm-hmm. that I can use that influence for the cause of Christ. Um, and, you know, that's actually the same kind of thinking that made us um, imperialists that made us Mm. colonize other countries and oppress them. Mm. And so we can say, so, so I don't think that we will achieve, can ever achieve our aims as Christians through the exertion of power, Mm. but it's through the exact opposite, which is what Jesus did. It's through serving and through modeling um, and following Christ rather than trying to take his place. So you're kind of wanting to call evangelicals back to sort of like that taking up your cross, that crucicentrism, perhaps that's that's really key to evangelical identity. I, you know, it sounds so basic, but it's, it's just something that I feel like I'm just seeing and realizing for myself mm. because because our, our infatuation with power can, you know, it, it's done in the name of something that's good, mm. but it's not good. Yeah, although I guess I guess the counter the counterclaim would be um, that it's naive not to think you need to say something about politics, you know, to to withdraw entirely um, from or not to have any uh, to, to focus away from politics is is kind of to to concede the ground to to uh, an unjust vision of society. So I suppose that's the that's the balance we've got to strike. I think you're exactly right, and and we really do have to remain balanced. We can't, you know, we can't correct an error in one direction by making the opposite, you know, error in the other direction. And it's very tempting to do that and hard to avoid it. So you're exactly right. I mean, especially as evangelicals, and I'm evangelical. I mean, God bless the Mennonite Amish communities, mm-hmm. but that you know who do separate, I, you know, but that is not. Um, I'm not one of them, uh, mm. for, because I do believe in the political and for, you know, working for change and social justice. And we do that through politics. Um, so I guess it's really a matter of kind of correcting the imbalance and, and not making the opposite error. Absolutely. Yeah. And because you've written that book or edited that book uh, on cultural engagement, and that is like such a key part of, as you say, the evangelical spirit of continuing to be engaged. Thank you so much for talking to us over here in Australia. (laughs) Thank Um, you for having me. Because we're all so intrigued. um, And and Michael and I have been uh, following uh, everything that you write for a while. So we're just thrilled to have had you on. Yes, and we'd like to get our uh, listeners on board with that too, uh, to look out for Dr. Pry's works, her sort of uh, articles, but also the, the two books on reading well and cultural engagement. I'd love to have asked you about 19th century novels and uh, the poetry of John Donne. But <laughs> Both Michael and I have English lit degrees. so You'll have we, to have me back on. Oh, we'd love to. We'll, we'll, do, we'll have fun and do something like that next time. That'd be fantastic. Thanks That would so be much. lovely. See you later. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Still to come, we talk about how we have tried to navigate the perils of being evangelical leaders in this very charged political environment, and then we get out the popcorn and chock tops for a classic political film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington.
Now we wanted to tell our listeners uh, about um, a very special project that one of our partners, Anglican Aid, is uh, doing and setting up, and it's the Sponsor a Bible College Student Project. Um, it's a really terrific project, and what you do is you um, sponsor a theological or Bible college student overseas in countries like uh, Uganda and Rwanda and Egypt and Nepal, Tanzania, South Sudan, and uh, you, you can sponsor them for their education. It's a far more effective way of getting theological education. Yeah, because into... it's, it's in their actual environment. It's not taking them out of it. So it's got bang for your buck, but also I think really good to keep people within their own context. Yeah, it's culturally appropriate training mm. at a trusted Bible college. And you can sponsor a student as an individual or a family or your Bible study group could get together and do it. So that's the sort of thing you can do. If you go to their websites, anglicanaid.org.au, you can find out more. It's a terrific project and we'd love you to be a part of it. For argument's sake, will we take a debate? Cut out the party politics. Oh, that's so relevant to this one. And try and talk it out. Well, this US election we're talking about has affected us here in Australia to an extent I cannot ever remember being like this ever before. The ABC have been like covering it non-stop. And in particular, I think also it's really affected evangelicalism in Australia. The US tensions and talking points are sort of being imported over into our context as well. Look, we've talked before on our program uh, about what Christians should do with the culture wars or with whether they tell each other their vote. So what we want to talk about coming out of what we just talked to Karen Swallow Pryor about is what do we as Christian leaders do in a very partisan environment, but also an environment in which so much seems to be at stake? And also, how can we stop Australian evangelicalism going down the same really divided direction that we see in the US? And I think you and I, Michael, have taken somewhat different approaches to this. Well, maybe, maybe. I mean, I've got people in my church who are... Uh, emotionally invested uh, in the election from the Republican side. So, uh, again, one of them's American, uh, but there are a couple of people who are just Australians, very very interested in politics, and were certainly um, invested for a whole bunch of reasons in in the in the Trump victory, and are very disappointed that he lost. Mm. And they're intelligent people of goodwill and uh, genuine Christian faith. So, they're not. Um, they're not evil, they're not kind of stupid, and um, I want to understand, appreciate and respect that point of view without necessarily um, just taking it on board entirely. I want to I want to seek to understand, and I also don't want to then um, cause a rift with them on the basis of something that's unnecessary or not actually core to what, we, what I am as their pastor. It's really interesting what you're saying because I did see a lot of people calling for you know, let's try and understand people who voted Trump. But that almost then became a rallying call when you're just trying to discuss Trump himself. And I, I know that I felt like myself that some people were saying that to me when that's something, I mean, that's like my, my research is evangelicalism. So, um, but, you know, to say something about Trump is not necessarily to say something about the people who vote for him and um, trying to keep those two things apart, like to, to keep apart that you might want to speak quite strongly into a situation without necessarily, therefore, saying things about people who voted or think a particular way. No, that's right. I think um, we, we forget that uh, ethics and politics are tragic businesses. Sometimes we're not choosing between mm. good and versus bad. We're choosing between what we perceive to be bad and less bad. Mm. And so 
I think there are people who um, would agree with uh, the assessment of Donald Trump's moral character, but felt that they had to hold their nose and and vote for him anyway, or would support him because of uh, econo- an economic vision that he generally upheld, or perhaps because they felt that um, the Democrats didn't, were, you know, are eroding. Uh, the Christian place in American and society, and therefore in the West. So, all of those th- things are coming in to play uh, for those on that side, um, and I, I think they're helpful things to understand and then discuss. You know, mm. is that actually in fact true? Um, and I noticed that a number of significant evangelical, conservative evangelical leaders in the United States, including Karen, but also John Piper, mm. um, and I think also. Uh, uh, Russell Moore, yeah. uh, they in the end have come out and said, no, I really can't go along with Trump because character does matter. So that was an interesting interesting thing to, to bring onto the table th- there from, that, from those yeah. thinkers. And I think, and um, you know, I, look, I read the John, I'm not a major John Piper kind of person. I think that's probably really? quite evident. Uh, but oh, yeah, I actually really appreciate what he had to say in this because I think that for me, I, I ended up coming out, I, I really sort of thought about this and ended up on... Um, social media saying, I'm praying that vote that Trump won't win. And I don't usually, like, I don't think I've ever done social media about US presidents before. <laughs> I'm not even sure I'd say that about an Australian election. So, I mean, on the whole, I'm sort of wary about that kind of partisan things, which I think has resulted in the divided environment in the US. But I do think there's a point at which it goes beyond that and you have to kind of go, in this particular moment, what's being demanded of me? And I think for me, this got, became a... Is it about being partisan or is it about a dismantling of, of democracy and some really key foundational things to that, including truth and um, and character? And it did make me think um, of, um, of of Bonhoeffer in a way. In um, And Bonhoeffer gets used and abused. <laughs> I was going to say, you're going to pull the Bonhoeffer. It's the reverse, it's the reverse Hitler. Go, go. <laughs> But, not, but, but what I mean about that is, is that there's a point at which, and, and I don't necessarily think it's an easy point. Um, and by the way, I, there's a quote that everyone likes using this kind of moment, which is people say is Bonhoeffer and it's not. So um, Eric Metaxas, is that you? Yes. So, yeah. He, he uses this quote on with, about Bonhoeffer and it's not actually from Bonhoeffer, which is about the, um, you know, uh, not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act, silence in the face of evil, self-evil. That wasn't Bonhoeffer. And it sort of lacks the complexity of Bonhoeffer, I think. <laughs> so I don't. Th- I think it can be really complex, but I think this is Bonhoeffer, which is that he said, uh, we have been silent witnesses of evil deeds. Um, we have been drenched by many storms. We have learned the arts of equivocation and pretense. Experiences made us suspicious of others and kept us from being truthful and open. Intolerable conflicts have worn us down and even made us cynical. Are we still of any use? What we shall need is not geniuses or cynics or misanthropes or clever tacticians, but plain, honest and straightforward men. Of course, I would say people. Will our inward power of resistance be strong enough and honesty with ourselves remorseless enough for us to find our way back to simplicity and straightforwardness? And actually, that was where I came from. I thought, you know what, without having a go at anyone else, I, I came to quite a straightforward place of, of honesty and saying, I legitimately think that what he, you know, and, and what he's done ever since with the election of not even conceding, that I legitimately thought that he was a person that just as a person is going to create damage both to both sides. This became a non-partisan thing. That's well, for me. Yes, and I, I mean I agreed with that in the sense that I uh, I put up a post about uh, walking in cricket, which, yes. was, which was a little bit elusive, but uh, it's uh, a way of kind of accepting the reality of the game even before waiting for the umpire's decision. Mm. Not always pushing for the legal, but actually recognizing that. 
um, social systems require trust. And when you uphold trust, you, you, mm. you build that. When you erode it, you actually diminish us all. And I do think that's happened. I mean, I would say um, where it, Trump is, is uh, uh, the result of a system, mm. not, not he's, he's a, both a product as well as a cause. He's a cause and a, yeah, and a, he's a product. Yeah, he's, he's sort of throwing fuel on the fire, but also has come out of what's... Yeah, the media is the media is a mistrusted institution, mm. and it was mistrusted long before he came and and, and kind of appealed to that, and kind mm. of then made it even worse. But I, I would say he's he has intensified all of that, mm. um, and we forget that democracy law won't save us in and of itself. There's kind of virtues that we have to mm. we have to practice as individuals and as smaller communities that make it possible. Absolutely, I think I'm with you on that. We need to sort of rediscover the virtues of the the public space. I think churches are a great place to do that too. Yeah. <laughs> so still to come, how could a 1939 film speak to the current political mess? Well, keep listening for our take on Frank Capra's classic, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Marg and Dave, two people obsessed by stories, but not always the same ones. And today we're looking at Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is a 1939 American film directed by a screen great Frank Capra mm. and starting Gene Arthur and a very young Jimmy Stewart, James so Stewart. So young. Uh, the film, I think he was about 29. Yeah. Um, certainly not the one of a rear window. The film is about United States Senate, a United States senator who's an accidental senator who fights against the corrupt political system. It's loosely based on um, some facts that some real events. Senator Burton Wheel is investigating the Teapot Dome bribery scandal. If you don't know what that is, I don't. Uh, <laughs> you can Wikipedia it. The film was banned... Uh, which is probably a good sign for its uh, it, what it is in Hitler's Germany, Mussolini's Italy, Franco's Spain, and Stalin's USSR. Um, and uh, I, I really enjoyed watching it. Um, it, it. It's a it's a curious film. Is it a comedy? Is it an, is a kind of epic? It's kind of got this it's kind of a comedy drama. It's like- kind of got this uh, hokey slapsticky sort of um, 1930s humour about it, which mm. is really quite, it's quite fun. It's quite cute. Mm. Um, but it's also got a really serious side Very to serious, it. Very serious, yeah. Very serious, exposing corruption and uh, darkness in the heart. And had some controversy at the time, this film. So, I mean, the fascist regimes didn't like it, but even some people were quite upset that it didn't show the Senate in very good. Well, it has the, the premise of the story is, in fact, that um, that there are corrupt, uh, there are lobbyists who are um, corrupting senators, and that uh, that that that's going on. That in fact uh, that that needs to be exposed. And what was really interesting, um, Karen brought up like the the outsider and how Donald Trump has been the outsider and people like that. And, and what you get in Mr. Smith goes to Washington is the outsider, but he's not he's not a Trump. <laughs> no, no. So Mr. Smith. <laughs> Um, is uh, played by James, James Stewart, is a kind of um, Boy Scout. It, they weren't allowed to use the name of the Boy Scouts. So he's a Boy Ranger. Boy Ranger kind of leader. So he's a youth leader and he's supported by all the kids of the mm. state, which is probably Montana, but we don't know. It's a Western Upstanding, sort of, yeah. naive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and what happens is a senator dies and um, the governor of that state has to appoint a new senator and he finds this kind of naive guy. He's going to be a vote winner because he's kind of po- so popular, sends him into Washington and they assume that they're going to just be able to steamroll him into their agenda. Mm. Uh, but it turns out not. 
which is feathering their own pockets. But and, and basically a lot of them are controlled by this media giant. So talking about connections <laughs> yes. with the current day, you know, there is sort of a Murdoch-like character in this. Well, I mean, they had that in. Uh, I mean, that's a that's been in American politics before mm. with uh, the Hearst family. So going back a long, long way. Um, but what uh, you're right about the outsider theme. So the outsider here is really positive. It's kind of like mm. this guy's going to come down to Washington actually, and show you know make the state more what it should be. Remind America of its constitution and its values, and return it to what it should be. This kind of fair, genuinely democratic. Democratic institution. Yes, it's sort of that vision of what sort of the perfect America. Although, what's really interesting, I think about it, is that the outsider by himself would not have won because he really needs. And you know, there's a little love story at the centre. Of course, because um, probably the cleverest and the interesting character arc in this is Gene Arthur's character as the secretary who actually knows everything that's going on, and um, she's the one that helps him with her insider knowledge and shows him how to use a system in a way that can bring good. And I want to show a clip because it's a really key moment where it turns it all around and it's something that she says to him. Your friend Mr. Lincoln had his tailors and pains. So did every other man who ever tried to lift his thought up off the ground. Odds against him didn't stop those men. They were fools that way. All the good that ever came into this world came from fools with faith like that. You know that, Jeff. You can't quit now. Not you. So... Basically, what she's saying is that there's a kind of foolishness of of not getting involved in the wisdom of the world. That's a good foolishness. And that really made me think about the Bible and um, wisdom and foolishness and power and weakness and how that gets all overturned by Jesus. So that's kind of a bit of the centre here, that he ends up doing this filibuster, this sort of foolish act, but it changes it all around. It, it changes hearts because it sets aside the way that power normally works. Yeah, a filibuster being speak, speaking for as long as possible in order to, to kind of delay the, the vote, et cetera, until yeah. you get what you... What, Things happen your way. Um, he's a holy fool character. Yeah. He sort of just through his innocence and naivety, he returns you to the to the to the good and a vision of the good. My problem is here uh, with comparing it to today. There's a sort of inherent faith in the system, the constitution, that uh, a romance about the American constitution and and uh, its uh, fundamental tenets that uh, it appeals to, and it says, look, the bad people in the system will be flushed out if we can only appeal back to that constitution. My question is, is that faith actually in the end misplaced? Because there, it law alone, constitution alone, doesn't change character. Yeah, well, I mean, and also, you know, it has like a particular sort of view of masculinity, which is interesting <laughs> in this as well with the boys and stuff. But but ultimately, what we we're talking about before, what I think is really wild, go watch this again, and it really is a gripping movie, um, is because of that idea of virtue, the importance of virtue in the middle of the system. Well, thanks for being part of With All Due Respect. Coming up in our next episode, well, it's finally... Uh, finally, <laughs> the end of 2020, the year that felt like 10 years. Um, and to see it off, what we're going to do is we're going to talk to researcher Mark McCrindle about the year that was uh, and what that means for the future. Then Michael and I are going to reflect on that as two Christian leaders and we'll reveal our top books, TV and films for the year. It was The Bachelor, I'm sure it was. <laughs> see you, everyone. See you later. With all due respect, is hosted by Michael Jensen and myself, Megan Powell Dutois, and it's produced by Mark Hadley. Editing is done by Nicholas Van Soust, 
with all due respect as part of the Eternity Podcast Network, an audio collection showcasing the seriously good news of faith today. Head to eternitypodcast.com where you'll find show notes and everything else related to our episodes and click onto our Facebook page to join in the respectful discussion. You've been listening to the Eternity Podcast Network, eternitypodcasts.com.au.